0: So as I said tonight, we're going to be looking at the life and death of the believer. So I need to ask the question, what is our understanding of the Christian life? What should we think about it? Where does it come from? To whom is it owed? What defines it? What is its purpose? And what about Christian death? I know it sounds strange to put it that way, as if there were such a thing as Christian death as opposed to Islamic death or Hindu death. Isn't death the same for everyone on earth, regardless of religious belief? Of course it is. But understand, I'm talking about how death is viewed from the Christian standpoint. How do we view the end of life as Christians? Does it have a purpose? Is death a good thing or a bad thing? Is it to be dreaded? Feared? Do we recoil at it? Or do we embrace it? These are some pretty deep questions that go to the very core of our existence. We're essentially asking questions about the purpose of life and the nature of the afterlife. Such profound questions ought only to be paired with profound answers. And thanks be to God that in his holy word we have one of the most profound statements ever written to answer these deep questions. To live is Christ and to die is gain. For the Christian, everything about the human experience, from life's first cry to final breath, all the way into eternity... Everything is bound up in this short statement. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. So by God's grace, by the end of the night, we should have a more full understanding of what that statement actually means. Now to that end, it would be helpful for us to remember the context in which the Apostle Paul wrote it. We should remember that Paul is writing, or was writing this letter, to the Philippians while imprisoned in Rome. This is a period in his life when he was unsure whether or not he would be released and live or be executed. So seeking to encourage the Philippians, he wrote to them to inform them about his circumstances and encourage them to live lives worthy of Christ. If you remember last week's sermon, I know some of you won't because you weren't here, you would remember that Paul told the Philippians that his imprisonment had actually served to advance the gospel. We just read about that actually. Rather than despairing because of his circumstances, he rejoiced rejoice because he knew the sovereignty of God gave meaning to his suffering. Also, he would continue in the faith courageously, not allowing slander and shame to crush his hope in Jesus. With the help of the prayers of the saints and the spirit of Jesus, he would honor God, whether it be by life or by death. So it is these two paths... Life and death that Paul ponders while he is writing this section of his letter to the Philippians. If his life is spared by Emperor Nero, then it would mean continued uh, traveling and teaching as well as suffering in service to Christ. He'd be able to visit the Philippians again, teaching them and having joyous fellowship with them. But if he is martyred, It will mean more than likely dying a gruesome death at the hand of the Romans. But going to be with Jesus forever and gaining his reward. And Paul says he is actually hard pressed between the two. He actually finds it difficult to settle in his mind which path was more preferable. Should he desire to live in service to Christ? Or should he desire to die and be with him? As we endeavor to understand Paul's dilemma, we'll be examining three points. One, the Christian's life is owned and defined by Christ. Two, the Christian's highest desire is to be with Christ. And three, living to serve Christ is more beneficial to our brethren. I'll say them again if you're taking notes. The Christian's life is owned and defined by Christ. Two, the Christian's highest desire is to be with Christ. And three, living to serve Christ is more beneficial to our brethren. So on the first point, the Christian's life is defined by service to Christ. Paul says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Paul viewed the very state of being alive As meaning that he must work for the cause of Christ. If one was the case. The other was a given. If he was alive. Then he must labor. What this implies. Is that service to Christ. Was not simply consequential to living. It wasn't just a secondary product of living. It was the very purpose of living. Service to Christ. Was the whole point of existence. To live is Christ. For Paul, that meant labouring after the Great Commission. Preach the Gospel. Teach the Gospel. Make disciples. Pass on the truth of Christ to faithful men. Feed God's sheep. Look after their needs. Love them. Seek to bring in the ones who have gone astray. Fight the wolves that prey on them. Push back against the lies of Satan. Speak the truth to maintain pure and right doctrine within the church. Serve Christ and labor for him. And all Christians must engage in this work. In whatever context they've been placed in. What this means is that your work and academic pursuits are not the goal of your life. Rather, they serve as the backdrop before which you fulfill your Christian duties. Represent Christ. Spread the gospel. Resist Satan. Stand up for the truth. Glorify God. Within modern Christianity, especially in the comfortable West, service to Christ is something that is done as a side activity. It's something that we squeeze into our schedules on the weekends or one night a week after we've done everything else. For many Christians, work or academic pursuits or even hobbies are the main focus of life. The goal of academia is so that you can get a good job, make money, so that you can lead a comfortable life. And buy the things that bring you enjoyment. That's about it. We set up our lives around Meeting our own goals and priorities, which often have nothing to do with the Great Commission. Earn a master's degree. Secure the top job at that high-paying organization. Own two SUVs, one for you and one for the missus. Own a five-bedroom, two-bathroom, upstairs downstairs house. Be able to go on overseas vacations at least twice a year save up enough money so that when you retire you can go on a bunch of world cruises, all up to Alaska, through Germany, everywhere get little Timmy into the best private school with lessons on evenings and Saturdays and sign him up for football after school so that he can get a scholarship and repeat that's how it goes now I'm not saying these things are wrong but I'm asking how do we think about them what level of importance do we place on them as goals in and of themselves? You see, underlying our academic, career, and hobby pursuits should always be the question How does this glorify God and benefit the church? Is this the best use of my time and energy? Here's an example. I remember one of Pastor John's sermons he was asking us to consider where our priorities lie. And he gave us this scenario. If you had to make the choice between staying in your current job, or moving to another better paying job, what are the chief considerations that you would make when trying to make a decision? I mean, the pay is way better, sure, but you'd have to work late most days and on weekends. Does it matter to you the effect that that would have on your prayer and Bible study? What about being able to volunteer for evangelism at church? And what about your family life? And yeah, this new job makes you an important, powerful person. But you'd have to pack your bags and move your family to a different part of the country or even leave the country but now you've moved away from a gospel-believing church. Is there one nearby in the new area that you're moving to? I mean, church membership is an extremely important aspect of Christian life. Yet many in our culture do not prioritize it. Would you be willing to miss church most Sundays because it was too far away from where you worked to live? Or how about this? Would you be satisfied only having the option of going to a church with questionable theology and practices because of your career? What do you prioritize? Hopefully the answer is obvious. Our minds need to be renewed regarding how we view life because to live is Christ. this should go without saying but perhaps a reminder will be helpful Jesus is Lord the scriptures say for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever all things are from him he is the creator God he owns all of creation the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof He alone lays claim to the lives of men. All things are through him. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. The universe, having been created by God, could not continue to exist without his sustaining power. And the last one. To him are all things. God created and upholds all things in the universe for his own pleasure. Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Brothers and sisters, understand this. Your pleasure is not the prime good to be sought in this world. That's not why you're here. Your wants and desires, unless they be for the glorification of Jesus Christ, are to be subservient and secondary to his will. And Paul understood this. To live is Christ. Every moment of his life was to be spent in service to Christ. These are the answers to the first questions that we asked. The Christian's life comes from Jesus and it is owed fully to Jesus. It is defined by obedience to his word and dependence on his grace. And its ultimate purpose is to bring pleasure to and glorify him. When pondering the possibility of being released from prison, Paul didn't say, You know what? When I get out of here, I done with that. I had enough. It's time for me to take some me time. I'm gonna buy a yacht and focus on my sport fishing. And go and see a Galilee. No! Instead he said, Should my life continue, it will mean fruitful labour for me. For Paul, the cause of Christ was his priority, and it should be for us as well. This brings us to the second point. The Christian's highest desire is to be with Christ. We just looked at the fact that we are owned by Christ, and thus our lives are to be spent in service to him. Christ lays claim to more than what we do in life. He lays claim to our desires as well. Let me ask you. What is the greatest commandment? Our Lord was asked that question once and his response is recorded for us in Matthew chapter 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Not only are we to love God with our souls, which speaks to the will and the things that we do. And not only are we to love him with our minds, which speaks to how we reason and think. But we are to love him also with our hearts, the seat of our affections and emotions. After all, our God is a jealous God. There should be nothing competing with Him for adoration and worship. And if you think there's nothing in your life that you worship besides God, think again. To worship is to give ultimate worth to something. And I can tell you there are many things that we in our sin value and find more worthy of our attention and affections than God a love interest or a spouse a hobby or even a pursuit like a career or wealth the fact that we value these things more than God is borne out by our actions and thoughts how often does whatever it is occupy your thoughts and your time compare it to how much time you spend in prayer and reading the Bible and you'll see what I'm talking about but Jesus is to be to each of us the sweetest, most beautiful, most desirable thing that we can think of. All other things in creation should pale in comparison to Him. If someone were to ask you, What do you want? the ultimate answer to that question should be Jesus the Christ. I want Jesus. What this means is that every believer ought to be looking forward to being with Christ for eternity. That's where our eyes should be. In eternity. Forget about the world cruises that you're saving up for. These temporal pursuits and joys are nothing to be compared to Christ. And this Jesus, this great king who demands all of our affections is a gracious merciful king even though he is deserving of our adoration by the simple fact that he is god he has given us all the more reason to love and adore him he has made grand promises to us regarding our lives with him in eternity he didn't have to And these are rewards that mere men cannot even comprehend. The scriptures say that no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined the things that God has prepared for those who love him. And of course we can't forget the blessed hope of freedom from the affliction caused by sin. The ending of the curse. The end of strife and pain. To be replaced by peace and pleasure. I've said all this to lay the foundation for what I'm going to say next. For the Christian, death is a desirable thing. Because it is the normal means by which we go to be with Jesus. And I know that God in His power could call us up at one time without any of us having to die. Or He could even return and none of us in this room have to die. But the normative way it has been appointed for it to go is that. It is appointed once for a man to die and then face judgment. So that is the normal means, death. That is how most of us more than likely will come to meet Jesus. And it is because death is a desirable thing for the Christian that Paul can say to die is gain. Because if our highest desire is to be with Jesus and death is the means by which we go to be with him, and today must begin. Now, let me clarify something. Normally, when we think of death, we think of loss and sadness and pain. And this is especially true when death occurs suddenly and unexpectedly, or when death occurs as a result of a terrible illness, or a heinous crime, or a tragic accident. Death is normally a heavy and grim reality that we all must face. And it's not as if the bitterness that we associate with death is inappropriate. Let's not forget what death is. It is our enemy. It's a stain upon God's beautiful creation that the human race brought upon itself because of its rebellion against God. I remember a few months ago, I was driving in the car with my wife and my daughter Eliza. And Eliza, who was a toddler, she was in her car seat. And she was calling out the names of things that she saw as we were driving along. And I remember just being so amazed at how intelligent this little girl was. She's still small. I was in awe at how this... Little creature that didn't exist a few years ago Could learn so quickly just taking information And then it hit me This sense of futility What was the point? She was going to die At some point Everything she would ever become would end all of the years and decades that she would spend building up her character and knowledge and skills, would all one day come to nothing. One day she would be gone. And that's when I remembered that death is not normal. It was not supposed to be like this. Death serves as a constant reminder that there are heavy consequences to sin. While we're going about our lives, enjoying the things of this earth, while paying little or no attention to the God that made it, death serves as a wake up call. There is a price to be paid. We aren't supposed to view death as, oh, it's just a part of life, it's a circle of life. That's just how things are. No, it's a horrible curse an enemy. For most people, death is loss. It brings to an end all of their pursuits and aspirations. Everything that people work so hard these days to build, their careers, their possessions, their knowledge, all of it comes to nothing. And what's worst, for most people, the end of life brings even more pain and more sorrow. For now they must face the continued consequences of their rebellion against God in hell forever. For most people, there can be no sweetness in death. When they taste of it, it is only bitter. The grim reality of the curse is all that there is. For most people, death is a horrible thing. It is to be feared. It is to be dreaded. It is to be recoiled at. But we are not most people. We are Christians. For the Christian, death is a blessing. Praise be to Christ that by his stripes we are healed. Jesus, by living the life we could not live in perfect obedience to the Father and dying on the cross has taken the bitterness out of death for all who believe. Though a man die, yet he will live. We can look forward to putting off this corrupt and frail body and then later receiving a perfect, incorruptible and strong body. We have neither fear nor nor dread of death because the damning power of sin has been defeated by Christ's sacrifice. And after three days in the grave, he rose to life again, declaring that he had the keys to life and death. We need not fear judgment because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And far from loss, we gain far more in the next life than was even possible to have in this one. We work so hard to build up our homes and our possessions and our careers and our status. But Jesus himself has prepared a place for us. Why do we work so hard to develop what we have here? Don't hear Moss and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But that doesn't happen in heaven. Our treasures are in heaven. And even more than that, we gain perfected righteousness. Imagine being free from sin, from the endless attacks of the flesh against your spirit. No more of that internal struggle. No more desiring to be righteous but being bogged down by lust and pride and selfishness. The upward struggle for sanctification that each of us began the day we were saved will finally be over as we are perfected once and for all. No sin. No evil. Just pure love and worship to God. That is what awaits us. This is why Paul can say, to die is gain, and it is far better. Let's do a quick recap. We started tonight by asking questions about the nature and purpose of life and death for the Christian. Then we saw the profound insight into the topic that Paul had. He said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But then he expressed that he was hard-pressed between the two. He was having a difficult time deciding which path he should choose. On the one hand, continued life would mean that he could continue to honour God's name by serving him. But it would also mean continued trouble, persecution, and suffering. And on the other hand, death would likely be gruesome, but it would free him from this sorrowful life and take him into the arms of his saviour. We looked at how the Christian life is owned by and therefore defined by Christ. We are to be willingly and joyfully at his disposal. Willing to share in the sufferings of our master and be like him in every way that we can. So yes, if Paul was to live, it would mean suffering, but that would be his pleasure. However, make no mistake, dying and going to be with Christ would be far better. Paul says so. My desire is to... depart and be with Christ for that is far better though it would be his joy to love and serve Christ oh to be with Christ It seems like an easy choice doesn't it? choose death so why was there any dilemma in Paul's mind? and this brings us to the third and final point we have tonight living to serve Christ is more beneficial to our brethren The dilemma was there because Paul loved his brethren. Verses 24 to 26 says, But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. As Paul weighed life and death, Even as he declared to be with Christ is far better. He came to the conclusion that staying in this life so that he could help his brethren was more beneficial to them. And therefore that is what he should choose. Thus he thought about the needs of his brethren above his own desires. This is great maturity being displayed by Paul. He was content to put off his own well-deserved reward for the sake of those he loved. And don't forget, this is the same Paul who said in Romans, oh, that I could be cut off for the sake of my brethren. This is what of mindset this man had. Very mature. But this text shows us more than the maturity of Paul. I want you to notice something. We also see the loving care of God in this text take another look at verses 24 and 25 it says but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account convinced of this I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith notice that Paul says he knows he will remain and continue in life with the Philippians how did he know? After all, Paul was not in control of his own fate. Rather, it was Nero, the emperor, who had the power to let him live or execute him. And ultimately, it was God Almighty who determined what would happen. So Paul knew the final say about his life rested with God. Therefore, Paul's confidence that he would live was a confidence that God would let him live. So while we see Paul showing great maturity in terms of his willingness to continue serving God what we should also see is is God's willingness to continue supplying the brethren God knew it was necessary for Paul to live for the good of his people you see as much as Paul cares about the brethren Jesus cares all the more God knows there is need for there to be workers in the field of the world After all, the harvest is plenteous, but the workers are few. Paul was needed to help build the church. Paul says, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. His continued teaching, exhortation, and even rebuke was necessary for the believers of his day to be sanctified and matured. There were heresies that needed to be resisted. And encouragement that needed to be given to the believers of the day. Remember something. They didn't have the New Testament as we know it today. There was no one collection of writings from all the apostles. Such as what we have in our Bibles. The thing that we take for granted every day. They didn't have that. So even as Paul wrote to the Philippians. He was still laying the foundation in terms of doctrine. That would come to define Christianity forever for Paul to continue a little while longer was indeed necessary and not only for their progress in the faith but for their joy as well verse 26 says so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again the Philippians could rejoice and give glory to Christ for having returned Paul to them In order to teach them and shepherd their faith. They could rejoice in the chance to once again partner with him in the gospel. For he was a minister of Christ. And their joy would be to see him continue laboring for Christ. Because all of us who are in Christ. For us our joy should be in aiding the work of ministers as they labor for God's sake. So brothers and sisters, finally let me say, this portion of scripture should be a huge encouragement to us. No matter what trials or suffering we face in this life, to live is Christ. There is joy to be found, even amidst the pain, so long as we are laboring for Christ's sake. The life that is defined by and submitted to the use of Jesus cannot be said to be waste. As you ponder your future, what do you see? Is it life? Is it death? It doesn't matter if you are in Christ because if you live, it will mean fruitful labor for you. And that is your joy. Serving Christ is the highest pleasure you can have in this life. And if you die, then you gain. Death, if you are in Christ, does not mean loss. Oh death, where is your sting? It has been taken away by Jesus Christ. Death to you is now a door through which stands your loving Savior. We know that to die is gain. Whether we live or we die, we can take comfort in the God who supplies all of our needs. So let us spend our lives Contently and joyfully laboring for Christ. Every day looking forward to our reward. Being with Jesus forever. Amen.